Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Let me pray for us. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we're reminded of the words of Moses to your people, that your word is no vain word, it is no empty word, it is our very life. And so I pray now uh, that for whatever purpose you've set out your word this morning, would it accomplish that purpose? You promised that your word will never return to you void. And so I pray that it wouldn't. We, we plead that promise, God, that uh, you would send it out to do what you've set it out to do this morning. Let it accomplish its purposes in our hearts. We have gathered here to be fed by you, our great shepherd, and so would you feed us, your sheep. We know we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to try and describe a phenomenon to you this morning, something, a gift, a skill that I have. I'm going to see if anyone else has this gift or skill. I have never once in my life picked out the right checkout line at HEB. Uh, I was reminded of this again last week as we were doing our grocery shopping for Thanksgiving. No matter what line I pick, it's the shortest when I start. It is the longest as soon as I get into it, right? Inevitably, I get behind the person who's trying to pay with Monopoly money or has 70,000 coupons or something, and I always get slowed down. Uh, It's a real skill. I can ruin your life. Come shopping with me sometime. It's, It's a miserable experience. The other day, I got behind this woman who was paying with a number of large bills. She was paying in cash. And so she, the process got slowed down. I'm sure you've seen this happen at some point. She handed the bill to the cashier, and the cashier immediately reached into the drawer and pulled out a marker. Anybody seen these markers? You ever seen these? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, it turns, the marker helps the cashier tell if the, bill, if the bill is real or not, right? So she, the cashier will mark the bill. It goes one color if the, bill, if the bill is real. If it's counterfeit, it'll turn another color. And since I had plenty of time uh, to wait while this was happening... I had the thought, wouldn't it be great if they had those for people? Wouldn't it be great if you had a marker that whenever you met a new person and you thought, I wonder if this person could be my friend or not, or I wonder if my kids should play with these 
people's kids. You could just kind of discreetly mark on their arm, and it would let you know if these people were true or trustworthy or authentic. Uh, Or if you're visiting a church for the first time, wouldn't it be great if you could kind of just mark something on the bulletin and know this is a good church, it's a safe church to be at. Uh, As you struggle with whether you are a real Christian or not, wouldn't it be great if you could just mark yourself and it would turn one color and you would know, I really am a real Christian. I wonder if you've had that experience, the the question of whether or not uh, you're a Christian or not. How do you know? How do you know if you really are following Jesus? How do you know if you're really saved? How do you know if you're really one of God's people? Can you know if you are? John, in our passage this morning, I think tells us that you can. I think John gives us a way to tell if someone is really a Christian, a test, if you will. He says that those who truly love God also truly love one another. Those who truly love God also truly love one another. Real Christians love each other is John's point. It's our big idea this morning. Real Christians love each other. Really simple idea, but if you've been in church for any amount of time, if you've tried to love other Christians for any amount of time, you know that simple does not always mean easy, right? Because we can be messy people. It can be hard to be in relationship with one another. But that's our idea. Real Christians love each other. We're going to divide this passage up into three chunks. Uh, In verses 7 through 11, I think I see three reasons that John gives us that we are called to love one another. In verses 7 through 11, we're going to see that real Christians love each other because we love what God loves. His love changes us, so we begin to have affection for what He loves. In verses 12 through 18, we're going to see that real Christians love each other because it's proof of who they are. It bears out who we are. It shows, it's, it's how we show who we really are to the world and to one another. Finally, in verses 19 through 21, we're going to find a final motivation. Real Christians love each other because God loved us first. Three points there. Real Christians love each other because we love what God loves. Real Christians love each other because it's proof of who we are. And finally, real Christians love each other because God has loved us first. Okay, so let's jump into the text. If you look back at verse 7 with me, real Christians love each other because they love what God loves. John begins in verse 7 simply enough. He says, let's love one another. Really simple command. He lists out a couple of reasons. First, love is from God. So if we're truly loving one another, that has to be from God. If we love one another, then we're born of God, he says. And then in verse 8, he says, okay, if that's true, then the reverse is also true. If you're not loving one another, you don't know God. Why does he say that? He says, because God is love. To know him is to love. To know him is to love other people. John says that God is so all-loving that to know him, that love infects you. It becomes a part of who you are. It changes how you approach other people and God. You can't help it. You want to love what he loves. Which raises the question, what does God love? Um, God loves his people. John gives us a way to know that from the text. How do we know that God loves his people? He tells us in verses 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, note a couple of things from verses 9 and 10 there. John wants us to know that the love of God was made, he uses this word, manifest. Love of God was made manifest. What does he mean by that? When John says the love of God was made manifest, he means that God's love was made visible to us. God's love was demonstrated for all to see. It was a public affair carried out among human beings to be seen and appreciated. 
Uh, If you're here this morning and you're visiting, perhaps you're checking out church for the first time in a while or investigating the claims of Christianity, uh, this is a really big one that we would want you to get. That God's love is not just some story we kind of tell ourselves to get through life. Uh, We believe that God's love was a historical event in the person of Jesus Christ. That God's love was not some abstract declaration of general affection. Not some warm, fuzzy feelings. Not some myth we've made up to tell ourselves. No, His love is concrete. It is real. It is historical. And He has proved it to us. And John says He's done that by sending His Son that we might live through Him. In verse 10, uh, John gives us a helpful reminder. He says it's not our love for God that is central. He says it's God's love for us. Again, if you're investigating uh, Christianity, and I hope you are, I hope uh, you've been welcomed this morning, and I hope you're uh, we're really, hope you know you, that we're really glad that you're here. One of the things also that we would want you to know is that this is so central to Christianity, that God's love for us is what matters. That is the anchor of our faith, not our love for him that we stir up uh, towards him, but his love for us. We didn't go, we as Christians believe, we didn't go looking for God. God came looking for us. I love the way that uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in our denomination, phrases this. He says, this is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other religion tells you what to do to get to God. Follow these five steps, believe these tenets, do these things, become a part of this religion, you will get to God. And Christian, Christianity flips that all the way around. We're not saying this is what you do to get to God. We are saying this is what God has done to get to you. The gospel is good news for us. John tells us that this is love, that we didn't go searching for God. God came searching for us. Verse 10 tells us that God's love involved him sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Um, Propitiation is just a big word that means a sacrifice. That God sent Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sins. So the big idea here in these couple of verses, John's emphasizing, we know that God loves us because he sent Jesus to deal with our sins, to be a sacrifice, to turn away the wrath of God for our sins, to remove the guilt that we all have because of our sin before God so that we might have eternal life. This is the heart of the gospel, that God loved us so much that not only does he not punish us for sinning against him, he takes that punishment on himself to reconcile us to him. Think about that. Not only does he withhold the punishment that we deserve, he takes it upon himself. This is why John uh, can emphasize this is not about our love for God. It's about his love for us. John brings it all the way back around to his main point in verse 11, if you look there. He says, if God loved us like that, John's been building a case. He says, if God loved us like all of that, that he would send Jesus in the flesh to turn away God's wrath, then that has an implication. The big implication is this. We need to love one another. If God loves us like that, then we ought to love one another like that. If God loves us sacrificially, we ought to love one another sacrificially. We need to love what God loves. Have you ever loved something uh, just because someone you cared about loved that thing? You ever loved something just because someone you cared about loved that thing? As I was preparing the sermon, I was struck by a memory uh, from my childhood of my dad. Uh, My dad is a very bookish guy. He's a lover of science fiction. He's not a big sports guy. I believe the technical term for this is that he's a nerd. Uh, And so you may think, like, well, it doesn't look like the apple fell too far from the tree. I know. I know it would appear that. But as a, despite what I look like now, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with sports. And I played everything that I could year-round. 
hard to believe looking at me now, but back then we were all about the same size, roughly this size, and then everyone kept growing, and I stayed like this. So uh, I gave up on sports. But back then I loved it, and I loved keeping up with it. I read the newspaper, watched ESPN all the time. And my dad began to notice this, that I really was into sports. And so despite his complete disinterest in this, he had no interest in it at all, he would read the sports section before I got up in the morning. And then at the breakfast table, he would kind of try to talk about it with me. Oh, did you see, you know, Ohio State beat Michigan or whatever it might have been uh, from the weekend before. And at the time, kids, I wonder if you've had this experience, teenagers, I hated this experience of my parent, my dad, trying to relate to me. It was so obvious what he was trying to do, right? He's like, Dad, I know you don't care about this. I know you don't care about sports. Why are you pretending that you do? It took me a long time to realize that my dad was not reading the sports section because he was trying to pretend to care about sports. My dad was reading the sports section because he cared about me. He was trying to communicate, I love you and what you care about matters. I love you. What you care about matters to me. I think real Christians, we have to love each other, at least in part, because it's part of how we demonstrate to God that we love him. We begin to love what he loves. We say to God, what you love matters to me. And so I'm going to try to love that as well. Real Christians love each other because God loves all these people sitting around you. Think about that. God loves the person sitting next to you so much that he sent his son to die for them. Think about that. The God who knows everything there is to know about that person, all of their secret sins, every inner thought they've had that they've tried to hide from themselves and from you, God knows that. And he loves them so much anyway that he sent his son Jesus to die for them. Um, and, then, and I know we begin to think, yes, but like, have you seen how they act on Facebook? Right? Have you seen their political rants? No, God says, I, I love them, and you should too. I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a ruling elder at the church that we attended back then um, that used to say this. I love this quote. He said, if Jesus loved the church enough to die for her, we can love her enough to be patient with her. If Jesus loved the people around you enough to die for them, then it goes, I mean, it's reasonable to expect that we could love them enough to be patient with them. I have to imagine that some of you here this morning are visiting. Perhaps you're disillusioned with the church. You're wondering what's in it for me at this point. Jesus loves the church. He loves the people that are sitting around you, and he calls you to love them as well. I would ask you, think about committing. If you've been visiting for a long time, if you're a regular attender, think about jumping into this family of God. Think about loving what God loves, which includes the people in this room. Real Christians love each other because we love what God loves. Okay, secondly, real Christians love each other because it's proof of who we are. Look back at verses 12 through 18. This is one of John's favorite themes in this letter, evidence. How can you know you're a Christian? And in this section, John begins to build a case. Uh, He lists out a couple of different things. And he says, if these things are true of you, that means you're a Christian. And that means that you have to love other Christians, which is his big point in this passage. So in verses 12 through 18, he gives us four different pieces of evidence. We'll move through these quickly. At first, in verse 12, he talks about the love that he's been talking about already. He says, if we have that love for one another, we can know that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Then in verses 13 through 15, John gives us another piece, a second piece of evidence. He said, God has given us his spirit and because of that, we have seen and testify 
that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. So this one sounds pretty obvious, right? If you want to know that you're a Christian, you have to confess that you believe in God, that you believe in Jesus. We actually did that this morning in the Apostles' Creed. And you may think, like, yeah, I kind of knew that when I walked into a church, that I would have to believe in Jesus. But don't miss the subtle order of, verse, of the verses uh, 13 through 15. John writes in verse 13 that we know we abide in God because he has given us of his spirit. And then he writes in verse 14, we have seen and we testify. That order is really relevant because John mentions the Holy Spirit first. We have the spirit before we see and testify and believe. As Christians, we believe that we can only confess that Jesus is Lord because the Holy Spirit has been at work in us. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, verse 14. Listen to what he says there. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit enables us to confess and to believe. And the reason that I'm belaboring that point is that if you showed up this morning and you can truly say, Yes, I believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, um, That is no small miracle. If you can confess that with your mouth and believe that in your heart, that may feel small. It is not small. Because lots of people don't and cannot believe that because their hearts are hard. The Holy Spirit has not removed their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh. God has not opened their eyes to see Him yet. The Holy Spirit has not yet done His amazing work of drawing them to Himself. So if you're struggling this morning, if you're wondering... You know, if you've sinned again, and you're wondering, is that it? Is God done with me? If you can humbly confess, if you can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That is no small thing. Take, take heart. Take heart this morning that God loves you and is still making you into the image of Jesus. Third piece of evidence, proof that we are Christians, John says in verse 16, He says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Christians know and believe that God loves them. One of the ways that you can have confidence that you're a Christian is that when God says, I love you, you begin to respond by saying, I believe you. I believe you. Um, I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and occasionally the pastor of our church uh, that I grew up in would call an audible on how we were going to end the Sunday service. Uh, he would make us all, whatever song we were supposed to sing, he would cancel that. We would all reach across the aisle. No one panic, we're not going to do this this morning. But we would all reach across the aisle, we would hold hands, and he would make us sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And again, when I was a teenager, I used to think, this is so dumb. Do we not have better songs? Do we not have deeper things? I mean, do we not have a better song to end the service with? Why are we still singing these nursery rhyme hymns? And the older that I get, and the further removed I am from that, the less stupid that I think that that was. Because that is one of the hardest things in the world to believe, is it not? That Jesus would still love you after all these years. After all of these years of sin and failure and not being able to get it together, not being the person that you want to be or that he has called you to be, it is the hardest thing in the world to believe that Jesus still loves you. I'm tired of me. How would God not be tired of me? And yet John tells us that one of the evidences that we are Christians is that we know and we believe and we abide in that love of God. 
that as God tells us that he loves us, we believe him. One more piece of evidence that John gives us here that you are a Christian is in verses 17 and 18. He says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. John tells us you can know that you're a Christian if you have confidence for the day of judgment. One of the things that we believe as Christians is that Jesus has ascended up to the right hand of God the Father, and we are awaiting. The Advent season that is coming up is a reminder that we are still waiting. That Jesus started something on the cross, and when he rose from the dead, that we are waiting for him to finish by returning and making all things right and new. And yet there's also going to be, on that day, judgment. That God is going to judge the world. And John tells us that we can know we are Christians if we look towards that day and we don't have fear. We have confidence for the day of judgment. We're not afraid. Verse 18 gives us the explanation why Christians don't need to be afraid. It says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. As Christians, if you've believed in the Lord Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of the day of judgment because God's love has dealt with everything. Uh, everything that there is to be afraid of. There's actually nothing left for you to fear. Jesus was a propitiation for our sins, John told us in this passage. He took care of all of our punishment on the cross. So there is nothing left for you on the day of judgment but perfect relationship with God for all eternity. The only thing left for you is the love of God to enjoy. All that's left is perfect relationship. Paul phrases it this way in Romans 8.1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing to be afraid of on that day. I wonder if that's your, if that's your position this morning. As you think towards the day of judgment, what, where are you as you think about that? Are you afraid? Because you do not have to be. Jesus invites you to come and to believe on him and to find that there is no condemnation for those who are in him. For, so there are four evidences there that John gives us that you can know you're a Christian, four pre- pieces of proof. We love one another. We believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior. We know that God loves us, and we're not afraid of the day of judgment. And John gives us those four proofs so that we can take inventory. He wants us to ask questions of ourselves. Is this true of you? And if it is, if you can affirm that humbly, right? If you can say, I mean, not all the time, but yes, I think that is because of God's grace in my life, I think that is true of me, then that means you really are a Christian. So pause and take joy in that. And then John brings it back around to his main point. He says, okay, so if you are a Christian, if all these things are true of you, then you have to love one another. That's the implication. It means you have to love the body of Christ, the people that God has brought you into community with. You have to love them. That's what God has called you to. And it's almost as if John knows that as we turn that corner towards, okay, trying to love each other, he knows how we're going to do that. He knows that we are that we are going to guilt ourselves into it. That if you're anything like me, you're thinking, okay, yes, that's right, I've got to do better. I've got to try to start loving these people better. I'm going to start baking bread. I'm going to do all the things that we're supposed to do for other Christians. He, he knows that we're going to lay these burdens upon ourselves. And so finally, in verses 19 through 21, John gives us a final motivation, a little reminder for those of us who are tempted to try and, uh, I don't know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He reminds us that real Christians love each other because God loved us first. Verses 19 through 20, John brings it back around to his original point. He says we have to love one another. And he spent many of these last verses marveling in the love of God in Jesus. And he summarizes his point this way. He says we love 
because God loved us first. We love because God loved us first. If you truly get the love of God, then you give it. You just, you can't help it. It's what you do. His love so radically changes you that you want to love other people like that. Uh, And I think it's really easy for all of us to agree with this idea, right? Like, that's what we want in a church. We want to be those kinds of people. We want to go to that kind of church. And yet the reality is really difficult, is it not? It's really hard to put yourself out there. Uh, When it comes to actually reaching out to someone, initiating with them, trying to get to know them, get to know their needs, share your needs with them. It's really hard, isn't it? What if they're not worth it? What if they take advantage of you? What if you become um, a doormat? What if these other people are not worth it? Loving each other will always be difficult as long as we're waiting on each other to be worth it. That motivation will never work. John tells us it it doesn't work uh, because we have a different motivation. We don't love each other in order to receive love. We don't come to the church and to one another, though hopefully we get that from one another. Our primary motivation is not because we need fixing from all these other people. And their love will finally make us complete and whole. John, no, we don't love each other in order to receive love. We love each other because we already have it. We already have everything in God that we need, in God's love for us. Our Father's love has completely changed everything. Uh, This summer at our RUF Summer Conference, we have a week-long conference where all of the RUFs around the country come together. And our speaker was a pastor in our denomination named Chad Scruggs. And he told this story, and and I'm going to close our time together with this story uh, because since he told it, I really haven't been able to get it out of my mind. Uh, Chad was telling a story of a friend of his who worked in college at a summer camp. Uh, and one day they took their campers to a theme park. And his friend had had a really long day of you know, chasing after 10-year-olds and watching them on the rides. And so he just was worn out. And he finally found a bit, bench to sit down on. He told his kids, you know, go ride one last roller coaster and then we're getting out of here. And so he's just sitting there and people watching in the theme park as you kind of do in theme parks, right? It's hard not to, to look around. And uh, not too far away, he saw, he saw some of those misting fans because it was hot. It's a Texas summer. And uh, they have those fans that, you know, blessed invention, that shoot the cold water all over the place. And, of course, everyone's kind of gathered around them. Uh, and as he's looking over there, he realizes that there's a crowd of kids that have gathered, and they're all kind of pointing and laughing at something. And so he thinks, oh, this is, that's interesting. I'd love to know uh, what's going on over there. And so he wanders over to see what it is. And as he approaches, he sees this dad who's kind of being goofy and he's dancing in the, mist, in the mist with his daughter. His daughter's probably eight or nine years old. And uh, as dads tend to be in these scenarios, he's being a little bit goofy. He's trying to make his daughter laugh. And so uh, Chad's friend assumed that's what all the kids were pointing and laughing at, is this dad just being silly. Until he got a little bit closer. Uh, and as he got a little closer, he realized that the man's daughter had some physical abnormalities. Uh, she had an arm and a leg uh, that, made, that were longer than the other. It made her dancing a little bit more awkward. Uh, her spine was badly misshapen. And he realized that the kids were not laughing at the dad. The kids were pointing and laughing at this girl uh, who was there. Uh, and in that moment, as is probably happening for you right now, his heart was filled with so much anger and so much rage. How could these kids laugh at her? This poor girl who must deal with this all the time, who every time she gets dressed to go out and be among other people, must fear that this exact thing is going to happen. This poor girl who bears her brokenness so plainly in her body, how can they laugh at her? 
As he wondered what he ought to do, he thought, how can I keep her from seeing these kids who are behind her, who are laughing at her? How can I stop them before she realizes what's going on? And his, so he starts to put a plan together, and then he looks, and he realizes what, that she has no idea that these kids are pointing and laughing at her. And he thinks, like, how can she not know? And then he realizes what her father is doing, that her dad is dancing and making her laugh and keeping her eyes on him. And she is so wrapped up in her father's love and affection for her that it has drowned everything else out. And Chad's friend realizes, like, oh, she's, she's going to be okay. Because she's centered in on her father. In fact, in this moment, she's just a little girl dancing with her dad. doesn't mean that she's not broken. doesn't change the reality of who she is. But her father's love changes everything. Um, if you were anything like me this morning, it's tempting when we read these passages uh, that tell us how we ought to love one another to feel a lot of guilt and to think about all the things that you're going to do. And I, and I do want to encourage you, there are things to do. There are schedules that need to be reflected on. There's bank accounts that need to be looked at. We need to think about how we spend our time and our money and how we love each other in the church. But please don't leave this morning without being reminded that your Father loves you. That as you go to love one another in the church, it is God's love for us that motivates our love. It is His love that drowns everything else out. It is His love that makes it possible for us to love one another. John tells us we love because God first loved us. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God has that kind of affection for you? The Bible tells us that it does, that He does. I pray that you would believe that this morning. Let me pray for us.